I remember reading, oh, my goodness, years and years and years ago, about Amy Carmichael. Late 1800s, she was, uh, Amy was a missionary in India. And when she was there one day, a little seven-year-old girl uh, ran up to her and asked her to protect her. And Amy wasn't sure what this was all about. Come to find out the girl had been sold to one of the Hindu temples and was used there in a lot of different ways, all, all very bad. Uh, it started a Donover Fellowship. It was an orphanage, basically, where Amy would, would uh, rescue some of these girls that were used in sex slavery there at the Hindu temples. Now, that was a long time ago. I thought, oh, okay, that was, that was, that's something that doesn't happen today, civilized world. About uh, 2005, I think, I was at a church conference and I picked up a DVD. You know, you go to all these tables and they give you all their little trinkets and pencils and notepads, all those things. You've been done this. Well, I got a DVD, went home. I'm still not sure exactly why, but, but Teresa and I sat down, popped this thing in the DVD player, and uh, my eyes and heart were opened to uh, the horrific truth that this sex slavery thing is very true today, much worse than it ha- had been. Um, I had started a quest in my heart. I thought, this is crazy. I mean, I've got little kids. What kind of hope does a child have who's sold into this kind of a life? And so for the last multiple years, I have been, I'm at the Compassion and Samaritan's Purse and Kama Services and International Justice Mission and Rescue the Children. I, I have checked out a lot of places, very good places, but for one reason or another, things just didn't, uh, connect. They didn't click. And then, I don't know, a couple months ago, I, I remembered, remember new. I said, oh, let me check. And so uh, Pastor Scott and I got on the phone. We ended up talking with, with Carl. And uh, you're the one who started me down this road years ago. But just so gracious to talk. And then even as we invited him to come today, just very gracious. He's got a very busy schedule, as you can imagine, but uh, was able to be with us. Uh, so, Carl, how did you get into this? I know, again, you didn't start off, I'm going to go into social justice issues way back when, when you were younger. You were a businessman, you said, right? Right. Yeah, I was a businessman uh, for almost 30 years. And in 2003, I got the opportunity to go on a missions trip of the Christian Missionary Alliance called Getting It Done Asia where they flew 115 pastors and district superintendents and missions mobilizers over to Chiang Mai, Thailand. Okay, now hang on a second. I have to, I have to say this for our people. You were, your business, you did insurance? Correct. And what was the premier insurance company way back when? Erie Insurance. Oh, it's still sure. today. Something's never changed. That's yep. wonderful. Okay, I'm sorry. You're on your mission trip. You're in Asia. Yes, and so... Five pastors weren't able to go because of issues with their passports or health issues, and I got to be one of five lay leaders that filled in on the trip. And they flew missionaries in from all over Asia, and each of them would tell us what God was doing in their countries. And the very last one that spoke was a guy from Cambodia, a CMA missionary who was working among the Vietnamese refugees, and he talked about child sex trafficking. And I had no knowledge of that, uh, had no idea it, it existed, that they could lock children in rooms as sex slaves. And he talked about the horrors of that. And as he did, he said, though, that we have also success stories. And they had started a school for the Vietnamese refugees because they couldn't go to the Cambodian schools. 
and he showed a picture of New, who at the time was 12 years old, and she was with three other girls singing in a choir, and he talked about how New had started coming to the school, started coming to the church, the CMA church there for Vietnamese, and he also talked about how she became a Christian, got baptized, started sharing her faith with others, but her grandmother was an animist and didn't like that fact, and so she would persecute New. When New would go to church, she wouldn't feed her those days. And he said that um, when New was 14 years old, that her grandmother carried out a threat and sold her to a brothel. And I had been going through the dark night of the soul for 11 months where I felt like God was silent in my life. And at that moment, he broke that silence with just two words that he put on my heart, not audible, but just impressed them upon my heart, remember new. And I knew that was God, and uh, I just broke down crying, thinking about what was happening to this girl who was my sister in Christ, and what could I do about it. And the seminar went on for another 30 minutes, and I just kept crying as I thought about new and what she was suffering while I was sitting in this air-conditioned hotel room uh, or seminar room. And I went up to him after the seminar ended, and I said, is there any way you could find her? And he thought he could. And I said, is there any way you could buy her out of the brothel? And he said, yes, probably, but you would have to pay her room and board and the money that her grandmother was paid. It was like $600. And I gave him my business card, and I said... You know, God spoke remember new to my heart, and um, I'll give you up to $20,000 to get her out. Uh, if you need more, let me know. Call me. Let me know what I can do. And he left because he had to fly back to Cambodia. So ironically, I went into Chiang Mai, Thailand by myself, and I just got a cup of tea and was sitting at a Starbucks window, sipping that cup of tea, asking God, what did remember new mean? And as I sat there, as only God can do, I was asking him questions like, is she dead and you want me to erect a memorial to her? Do you want me to hold her as she dies of AIDS? Do you want me to go in brothels in Cambodia and try and find her? I didn't know what he meant by remember new. Behind me were three teenage girls who just spent three weeks at New Life Center, which was a home to get girls out of the sex trade. And I explained to them what had happened to me, and I got the contact information for New Life Center, and that would be the first home when I came back six months later to do research and look for new that I interviewed to find out what could be done to help these children. I was halfway through a master's degree at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and in seminary I was writing my master's thesis on this, and so I started doing research to learn what could be done to help. Hmm. And so you ultimately did find new? I did. I uh, started taking trips over to Thailand, as I said, and I would interview people who had run homes or were starting children's homes, asking them their successes and failures, what they did right and wrong. Did it from an academic standpoint to write my thesis and also to learn more. And then I would go over to Cambodia. They neighbor each other. And I would spend a few days each trip looking for new. 
And I had learned by that time that 90% of the Vietnamese refugees lived along one of two rivers, either the Tonle Sap or the Mekong River. And I would hire an interpreter and walk up and down those river banks where they lived with this picture I had of New when she was 12 years old. And I would ask the people, do you know any of the girls in this picture? Do you know their families? Do you know how I could find them? And after six trips and a two-and-a-half-year period, I was able to find her in July 2006. Uh, Carl, help us understand a little bit, as suburban Americans, selling your kids is just, I mean, it just seems so, something in a movie that someone has made up. Uh, Why would somebody do something like that? Yeah, when I first started, I thought, what kind of monster do you have to be to sell your child? And then as I started talking to these people and learning about their problems, uh, I learned the typical situation that happens is that a young couple gets married, they have a few children, maybe five or ten years down the road, the husband runs off with someone else, he abandons that family, he starts another one in another part of the country, and he'll never be in contact with them again. And then this lady is there with three children. Women are very downtrodden in most of the countries that we're involved in. And so she has no way to earn an income to support these children. Like in Cambodia, the best thing she can probably do is go collect recyclables from the trash. Working full-time, she'll earn about $25 a month, which isn't enough to provide for a family. So many of them try to get remarried, and they try and find a husband that will agree to take their children and support them, and they'll get married, and maybe a few months or a year or two later, she'll get pregnant, have another child, and the husband will say, you know, all I can do is support our family. Those are your husband's children. I can't support them any longer. And our most typical child that we support comes home from school and their mom is gone, their stepdad is gone, and they will never see them again. Uh, I call it effectively orphaned because they do have a mom and dad that are alive, but they'll never see them again. So effectively, they're orphaned. And um, that's that's the situation that many of the children that are at risk of the sex trade are in. So these kids are sold into... Slavery at what age? Uh, children, uh, they have found children as young as three years old locked in rooms as bra- in brothels as sex slaves. Uh, typically, like in a country like India, as soon as they hit maturity, that could be 9, 10, 11 years old, they're sold into the trade. That's a pretty common age for a lot of the children. And so what hope do these kids have? What's their future hold for them? As an example, in Cambodia, if you enter the sex trade before your 18th birthday, you have over a 97% chance of leaving it with HIV or AIDS. And so there is no hope. Uh, Once they get in the trade, like in India, uh, they will literally keep them in the brothels until they're no longer being purchased when AIDS becomes... Uh, prevalent enough that people can see it, then they won't purchase those girls. And they'll put them on the streets, and they've been abandoned by their family. 
they have a caste system there, and they look at them as untouchable. Uh, it's crazy, but literally they many times are just shoveled up after they die like an animal here that would be killed. So, so, so what's your strategy? Do you get the guns and storm the brothels and take the kids? What do you do? No, I'm not that brave maybe. Um, no, as the first six months... God put me in a position where I just had to pray and do some fasting and do research. And during a a two-and-a-half-year period, I read everything there was to read on child sex trafficking and children's homes and what was being done to help these children. I interviewed 50 or 60 people who had started homes or were running them, again, asking them what can be done. And the thing that I learned was the most effective way to stop this, which is what our goal is, is ending child sex slavery through prevention. The best way I found to do that was to start children's homes and remove the kids from the at-risk situations that they're in and put them in a home where they can experience the agape love of Christ and give them education and proper food and clothing and shelter and medical care. So the parents, you go, we, we just walk into a town and you say, give me your children, and they say, okay, here you go. Is this how this works? No. Uh, what we do is when we find out a child is sold from a village, say it's over here, we'll go to that village, we'll talk to the village chief, and we'll say we have a children's home. We can give scholarships to impoverished children, and if you'll let us talk to them, we may be able to help some of them. And if we offer a scholarship, we provide everything. We'll do food, clothing, medical, shelter, education. We'll put them through college. It won't cost the family a dime. And we'll interview the children in that village, and we'll find out maybe there's two of them there at risk of being sold into the sex trade. We call back a couple of weeks later because we don't want them to know what we're doing a third of the people abusing the children are government officials and policemen. And when we go do interviews in a village, the sex broker is usually in that room with us, but we don't know who they are. And if they knew what we were trying to do, they would call mafia or the brothel owners, and we probably wouldn't make it out of the village because we're going to take their livelihood away from them. So we call back two weeks later say we can offer a scholarship to this child and this child. And when we do our interviews, we have like a 10-page application. We ask them what their grade point averages is, what sports they like, what they want to do when they grow up, where's your mom, where's your dad, what siblings do you have, all this stuff is a smokescreen. We only care about eight questions, the ones that make them at risk. But if we told the village... We're taking these two because they're at risk of the sex trade. Those kids would be ostracized from that village forever. The other kids would make fun of them. And, again, there would be a dangerous aspect as well. So they don't know why we do it because maybe we take a child that has a mediocre grade average and one that's great in sports. But in another village they heard we took one that was terrible in sports. Uh, But that way the children are protected would seem to me, if you take a lot of these kids, they're vulnerable kids, at-risk kids, you put them in a home away from their family, 
We hear an awful lot of horror stories of kids who are in those situations who end up being abused by the people who are supposed to protect them. Yep. Have you had anything like that happen with any of your places, Carl? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I would say in the homes that I interviewed, maybe about 40% of them, they had had children that had been molested by workers. And one of the things that will sound very simple but a solution that I learned that we could implement at Remember New is we have a rule that no one can be alone with a child. Not a house mother, not me, not any of you if you come visit a child, none of the workers. And everybody knows, the workers and the children, that if anyone is alone with a child, if they're a worker, they're immediately fired doesn't matter who it is or what the circumstance was, they're fired. No questions asked. And if a team member is over there and they're alone with a child, they're immediately escorted off the premises to the airport and they have to pay for their own flight home. We're very serious about that. All the children know that. And it even gets down to if a child is sick and going to have to spend the day home from school, another child will stay home also so that no one will be alone with just that child. And because of that, uh, and God's grace and protection, we've had over 1,400 children that are either in our care or have come through our program, and there's never been even an alleged case of abuse. And it also protects, in some cases, a child who becomes sexually active with a boyfriend or had been raped by an uncle or something, Sometimes they'll falsely accuse workers in children's homes. And it also protects our workers from that because the kids and the workers all know no one's ever alone. And we've never had someone be alone either, never had to fire anyone from Mm -hmm. it. You mentioned in the the first hour one of the reasons why you uh, don't necessarily go after the, the kids who've been in the brothels. Would you share that? Yeah. Um, Again, as I fasted and prayed through this, God made it very clear to me that he was calling me to prevent children from ever entering. And one of the reasons why is, in my opinion, if you help children who are in the brothels and you keep helping them, getting them out, they just bring new children in. And so ironically, more children get abused that way. If we stop them before they ever get there and we stop their supply, this can end. And a lot of people say, how can it end? It happens to 1.2 million children a year right now. And the reason I totally believe that is, is in an example, uh, in um, in an Asian country in 1997, if you might think back to that age or that time, What do you think the youngest age that they found a child in a brothel? This is in an Asian country, one of the five worst in the world for child sex trafficking. The age was 17 years old. That was the youngest child in 1997. In 1999, that age had dropped to 14. In 2000, that age had dropped to 12. And by 2003, that age had dropped to three years old in the same country. What that tells me, though, is that this became a huge problem in a seven-year period. And so logic dictates that we can end this in a seven-year period. 
but we will only end it by prevention, by stopping them from getting those children. And that's why I believe God's put on my heart that we have to prevent this. And I also believe that, like William Wilberforce in his day, God called that generation to end slavery as they knew it. And it happened in that generation. And we can do the same thing. And I think in this day and age, it's ludicrous for children to be locked in rooms as sex slaves. I think we have to end this. We know how. It's not difficult. We just need the people to help us and the resources. It will end. I think God wants us to end it. I think it's his heart. Yeah. Well, and, and if, if all we did was protect the kids from sex slavery, that would be huge. But you all use this as a, I mean, this is a major evangelistic uh, issue as well for you, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I learned in research is that if you run a children's home right, they end up planting a church by default. In the countries that we're in, um, over 95% of the people claim to be Buddhist, Hindu, or Muslim, most of the countries that we're in. And in many of them, missionaries have been there for over 100 years, and there's less than a 5% Christian influence. And the reason for that is it's very difficult to reach the adults in these countries. They've been brainwashed their whole lives, like saying in Thailand, to be Thai is to be Buddhist. If you're Thai, it's just assumed you're Buddhist, like it used to be in America maybe 50 years ago, that if you're in America, you're a Christian. Um, But when you reach the children and you show them Christ agape, they come to Christ out of that love. It's irresistible. They've never been loved like this in their life because their parents don't have Jesus Christ living in them. So they, they can't love them the same way that Christ can love them through our workers who are all Christians. And so in our homes, over 90% of the children have become Christians. So in the last seven years, there's uh, over 1,200 children in these countries that have become Christians. They're leading other children to Christ, family members, neighbors. And so I think these countries are going to be reached for Jesus Christ through their children. And we've planted churches in most of the countries that we're in. And you're, and you're in some countries where it's very difficult to do mission work. Uh, government watches them like a who knows what, a hawk. But for a children's home, they'll let you take care of their kids. So you're able to evangelize, uh, disciple these girls in a major, major way. Do you have any boys? Is it just girls? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually messed that up in the first uh, service. I didn't mention the fact a third of the children that are at Remember New are boys. Hmm. Now, like in Thailand, over a third of the children entering the sex trade are boys, and it's growing in all of the countries that we're in. So we do also work with boys. Carl, what's the, the difference between what you do and what, uh, say, Compassion International? And I've, I've had Compassion Kids, have two today, and I've had them for the last 30 years. Um, great organization, but what's, because your sponsorship is just a little bit more than Compassion Sponsorship. Yeah, uh, one of the things that I realized early on in this is there are a lot of, like, drop-in programs. That's what Compassion kind of is. They'll help with education, help with vitamins and food supplements. But then the children live 
in their family setting, whatever that is. And we've learned in uh, follow-up interviews and stuff with children like that, that many of them fall prey to the sex trade. And the reason is their family situation is what makes them at risk. So that's why we bring the children in. They live with us 24-7, 365 days a year. Um, We have 100 children, over 100, that we have on scholarship where their family situation isn't at risk other than the poverty. And by giving them education, a scholarship for education, and some food, like maybe they're staying with a grandma because their mom and dad are in prison for life or they've been killed, those children can still be safe living with their grandma. And that's always our first choice. But for us, we've found about 90% of the children we find at risk, it's their family situation. Maybe the brother is an alcoholic and dealing with drugs, and he will sell that child when he gets the opportunity. So the difference for us is we're providing full care for these children, and we also provide that care through university because a lot of homes, about 40% of them, age children out. When they hit anywhere from 14 to 18 years old, the children have to leave. And every time I ran into a home like that, I would follow up and say, well, do you find any of your children end up in the sex trade? And the answer was the same every time. They would just put their head down and say yes. And I knew that, and I wanted to scream at them, why do you do it? But I knew the answer. It's because they didn't count the cost of what it would cost to take that child through university and they had limited money, and so they didn't do that. And with us from day one, we committed that we'll put them through university uh, to, or give them vocational training so they're no longer at risk. The child that started this in you is new. We want to take a moment to look at her story as told by new. <laughs> uh, she considers you her dad. She does. Oh, wow. What a great thing. Today, right now, where's she at, Carl? In Cambodia. In Cambodia. And her future? Well, she's coming back to the state. She's been here about four different times, uh, March 28th, and going to spend the next six months here. And her and uh, her boyfriend's plan are for them to get engaged and married during that time. Yes, yes. yes, That's great. Well, she's dating. Can I tell people where she's, yeah, yeah. she's, she's dating the, the pastor's son of Princeton Alliance Church? So that's a cool thing. Yeah. Um, we can feel bad and hurt, and that's right for us to do so. Um, but what can we do beyond that? If we want to help you, if we want to help your children, what, what can we do? Our strategy at Remember New is to match a church from the States with a children's home around the world in one of the 10 countries that we're in. And what that looks like is is if we can have 10 people from the congregation that are interested in sponsoring a child, we'll start a new home in the name of that church. And we have three different levels that people can sponsor a child. Uh, $60 a month is being a parent to that child. And this helps provide for that food, clothing, shelter, medical care, and education. Then we have a grandparent level that's $40 a month 
to be a grandparent to a, one of our child or one of our children. And then you can have a sibling sponsorship, which is $20 a month, to be like a brother or sister to one of our children. And those sponsorships provide for all of our children's needs. And so if we have 10 sponsors here, and after first service, it was a very significant response. But if we have 10, then we have a home someplace, somewhere, like the FAC home, and our people can go visit mission trips with us. Yeah, that's another thing that we need is we invite people to come over and bring teams over. They can be a work team where maybe you come over and help in the construction of one of the children's homes or work on the land and put in a prayer garden or something like that or come over and do um, like a vacation Bible school for the kids and some of their friends. Then we also need workers. Uh, we, I actually, my wife and I moved back stateside uh, last year so that I can recruit people to work with us. We need about 60 Americans to oversee the work of Remember New Worldwide. Uh, those are positions overseas, and we need people here stateside as well to help us. Our workers in the homes are all indigenous to the homes or to the countries that they're in so that the kids, you know, in Thailand have Thai house parents and helpers. We want them to retain their culture, but we use Americans to, like, teach English as a second language. We need people to do that and be country directors. There's about 15 different positions for each country that we need to fill for Myanmar, Cambodia, Thailand, and Kenya. We need those. Wow, wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray f- for you for your work. We will. But any last words for us, Carl, anything you would say to s- just uh, encourage us anyway? Yeah, I, I would encourage you to stop by the table. You can sign up to get our newsletter that comes out every one to two months and learn more about Remember New if you want. You can pick up a brochure that tells you about Remember New and our child sponsorship. Uh, You can also sign up to be a sibling or a grandparent or a parent sponsor. And we would cover your prayers. We need that for the children and for our staff and everything. And I I thank you for the heart of your church. It's a beautiful church. And the response was very good, the first service. And we really feel welcomed here. And I thank you for that and for listening to us talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for being with us.